Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. For you very astute listeners, that's right, you may have picked up on a slightly different intro there. We have a new institutional home at Columbia University, and our team could not be more excited about that. Speaking of support, one of our main supporters is Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations. Because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, today's show senior fellows Gavin Rain, an epidemiology and biostatistics PhD candidate at the University of Kentucky College of Public Health, and Lorraine Velez-Torres, a microbiology PhD candidate at the University of Puerto Rico Medical Science Campus, talk to Dr. Carlos Rodriguez-Diaz. Rodriguez-Diaz is an associate professor and vice chair at the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health. They speak about his journey to public health and how it began in southwest Detroit, why representation in academia matters, Capturing the diversity within Puerto Rico, the power of identifying community strengths and public health interventions, how COVID disproportionately impacted Latino people, and how we can learn from COVID to prepare for the next pandemic. He also discusses the problem he has with the word resilience and how it's thrown around these days, talking about communities, which I really liked. Enjoy. So we are here with Dr. Carlos Rodriguez Diaz. He's an associate professor and vice chair at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. He holds a master in public health education from the University of Puerto Rico School of, Pu of Public Health, a PhD degree in public health and community health promotion and education from Walden University College of Health Sciences, and a postdoctoral training in HIV and global health from the University of Puerto Rico School of Public Health. Dr. Rodriguez Diaz's work has focused on infectious diseases, particularly HIV care and prevention, as well as sexual health promotion and health equity through actions on the social determinants of health. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez Diaz, thank you for being here with us. It's great to see you. Thank you. It is, uh, it is my pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. So we wanted to start uh, the conversation by getting to know more of your inspiration or motivation that had led you to be the community health scientist that you are today. Your work has focused on various topics about health equity and social determinants of health. And we wanted to know what made you you research public health and from this perspective. Yeah, so, well, as, as, as you share in the introduction, uh, I've had the privilege of having access to higher education and to um, hone in my competencies and knowledge uh, in areas that are dear to my uh, heart, personally and professionally. Um, you know, my inspiration was primary care. Although I have to say that I had no idea, uh, I would not be able to, I was not able to articulate that 
when I was on my teens and trying to figure it out what to do next, uh, uh, going to college. And, but my inspiration was a primary healthcare provider in my hometown of Aguas Buenas, Puerto Rico, a relatively small rural uh, town in, in the center of the island. And I knew the primary healthcare provider and she was very active in the community. She was a healthcare provider of almost everybody that I knew. Um, and to me, that was the model of something that I wanted to do. Um, so I thought, well, I will be a physician and I will do similar work. Um, through my experience in college, um, I went to college for chemistry um, and I was doing a lot of wet lab work, learning a lot and very passionate about what, was, what I was doing. But I found a mentor who uh, in my senior year uh, advised me to uh, explore the health field in which I was planning to commit um, as a medical student. And so I did. And I um, went to the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And that was my introduction to public health. Um, I went to a program on health policy and management and got to work with a Latino serving organization in Southeast Detroit. And everything changed for me uh, after I met a, a community of Latinos in Detroit, Latinos that were working with their own community. And um, a significant portion of the work that this organization was doing was providing HIV services to the Latino community. So for me, I was, I was 20 years old and it was also a um, very enlightening opportunity to see myself reflected in the community as at that time and still today, uh, most of the HIV cases are reported among um, gay and bisexual men. And as a queer man, I, I could see myself in the populations that we were serving. And at the same time, I had the opportunity to reflect on how, wh what are the privileges and the opportunities that I had that I was on my twenties knowing very little about HIV. I was not living with HIV. Uh, and I was in this position, you know, uh, there was a privilege again to provide services to the community. So, um, at that point, I decided, you know what, this, this is what I thought um, primary care or that being the doctor in the, in the little town meant, um, but it's actually public health. So I'm going to do this. And uh, later on in my career, as I had experiences working as a public health educator, I realized that I wanted to dismantle the structures of power and privilege that allow me to get higher education, to live through life with, 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 without the fears that so many people like me have to deal with. And that my calling was to be in academia and, and do research with my communities, to work with communities um, where that I could bring uh, my, my knowledge and experiences in, for their benefit, that I could learn continuously from different communities and also to um, support other Latinos, other queer people that wanted to join academia and work in the public health field. So that's, that's a long story short of my inspiration. So I hear that. Uh, I feel like everybody who gets into public health, we all have this like really circuitous route, right? None of us start, because I mean, I think nobody really hears about public health or in my, in my case, epidemiology first, right? I think we all hear 
like I also wanted to be a doctor. I was in the, in the U.S. Navy and I started responding to uh, disasters in Asia. And so I did the same thing. I was like, well, if I want to do public health, I have to become a doctor because that's all I saw. I saw people doing that work were doctors. And I thought the same thing. Um, like I had never even heard terms like primary care and secondary care and tertiary care. Um, and so, so, so I actually went to uh, Michigan State uh, <laughs> for uh, microbiology and molecular genetics. And same thing, wet labs, all of that, and then switched over to um, a public health program um, in my master's. So I definitely resonate with that kind of kind of oddly circuitous route to getting to this one space that really speaks to you. Well, I have to say that we are also now in a position that is very different from the exposure that we had to public health, because now we're going to, in the very near future, we're going to be working with people that has been inspired and know more about public health because we are working in a pandemic, right? We That was not our experience. Some of us have worked in epidemics, emergencies, or public health disasters, but not a pandemic. So nowadays, I think it's more, much more popular to know what public health is, perhaps what an epidemiologist is. Um, and although we still have a lot of work in, to communicate what we really do and, uh, and to communicate the work that we do, we certainly are in a different space. Plus, we have these platforms to talk more about our experiences and making sure that others that, were, that are or will be in our positions um, in the very near future uh, get to hear the voices of others that, are, that were in similar positions. So I guess, um, as you mentioned growing up, you had this role model, um, this woman who kind of really inspired you to go there. And that kind of leads to one of those conversations um, that we'd kind of discussed in email prior, you know, what role this kind of seeing like diversity in these spaces, you know, seeing somebody who looks like you, who reflects you both, uh, particularly in points of leadership, people who you professionally aspire to be, kind of how did that play into or embolden you to seek those avenues as well? Oh, well, so, you know, uh, I think I have a, well, my experience, everybody has a, a unique experience. Um, growing up in Puerto Rico, going to college in Puerto Rico, um, my challenge was not not seeing other Puerto Ricans in academia, because it, academia in Puerto Rico is predominantly of, uh, composed mm -hmm. of Puerto Ricans. Um, but it was for seeing people that were queer, that were interested in doing work from different perspectives and challenging norms and systems. Uh, so not only being queer in terms of identity, but to, to do queer work. Yeah. Um, so that was a challenge for me. Uh, fortunately, I was able to find people who brought that kind of either visibility or modeling uh, to me, mostly when I started doing work outside of Puerto Rico. And then now that I'm in, in, in the continental U.S., I, I experience uh, this minoritized experience of being Latinos. Um, so I guess that now I, I experience multiple minoritized uh, identities that interplay in my role in academia. So uh, for me, what that means is that I, I have had the opportunity to get where I am because I've had mentors and um, su a support system that have allowed for that. 
yes, I have done my part, but none of these components is, is enough. You know, I've had the, the, the whole uh, network that support uh, growing uh, in academia. So for me, it comes with a, a lot of commitment and responsibility because unfortunately we're still in this time of history that we are still calling the first person of so-and-so that is named to this position. Definitely. The first minority to do this. I mean, it's, it's so unfortunate, but well, here we are and we are changing that narrative. So I am committed to continue changing that narrative um, to open doors and to use the privilege of being a tenure faculty member um, to bring others like me to academic spaces and to leave doors open yeah. um, so others can do better than I'm doing. Uh, and in the future, we will have other diversities that are still underrepresented in academia that, re that needs and will benefit of the work that we are doing now, right? We, are not, we don't talk much about abilities and uh, language, um, religion, when it comes to uh, diversity in academia. So I think that's the future uh, that we are starting to work on now, even though we still have so much to, to do when it comes to the identities that we have, have mentioned. Definitely. Um, I know Lorraine, we, I don't think you and I have talked a lot about what your experience looks like as a woman of color, kind of navigating varying academic spaces. I know you do a lot of work in your country, but also kind of figuring out what that looks like if you want to move to the continent, like, you know, if you want to move like California or somewhere, like what does that transplant looks like? And how does that kind of compare to our kind of discussion Then what we also know about Dr. Rodriguez's experiences and his academic track and professional career? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Definitely, I've, I've been trying to work on the visibility of women in science here in Puerto Rico and uh, getting more uh, girls to know about science through different programs that we have in Puerto Rico with Ciencia Puerto Rico and by mentoring girls. Uh, but I haven't had the opportunity to go like to the United States to work there uh, or go to a lab. I went to a research lab uh, with Dr. Felix Rivera Mariani. It was like a one week uh, internship uh, and it was a great experience, uh, but it was like he was part of the family. He's a fellow Puerto Rican scientist, uh, yeah. but I haven't like had those struggle or, or faced those struggles yet. But let's see if in, in the future I go to a postdoc there. Mm -hmm. So then kind of out of, from my perspective, so, you know, I grew up, I grew up, um, so I grew up kind of in California, lived in a couple of different places throughout the U.S. and then uh, served in the, in the U.S. military. But I grew up as a black queer man in America and like, you know, from California to Michigan or whatever. Um, but what is it like being American, being a person of color and being Puerto Rican where a lot of people don't realize, <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't think of the connection between the two, right? A lot of people, you know, so when you come, when you do research with other academics, you know, I know, I have heard language that, you know, kind of seems to demonstrate that people don't know, uh, <laughs> don't know about the connection, don't know, oh wait, they are, these people are, they're here, they're part of, they are just, they're equal to everyone else 
ignoring the political systemic issues and difficulties. So what has that been like um, from both of your perspectives, trying to again, navigate the mores and challenges of becoming professional scientists? Yes, please, Dr. Rodriguez. <laughs> Go first. So I think the, the experiences have changed over time for me. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was a student, I remember when I went to Michigan, I felt that I was not even uh, ready to, to go, uh, mostly because of language barriers. And then I realized, oh, we're ready. It's just that we do not use English uh, in Puerto Rico on a regular basis because we don't need to. But yeah. uh, in terms of the academic work that we do constantly, uh, we, we use English as a primary language. Um, and still, uh, you know, I felt that it was a challenge. And in the process of working with communities, I realized that it was an asset, the fact that I, I was bilingual. And, and you know, I, I fortunately also speak other languages, but I will only say that I'm bilingual English and Spanish, because those are the, the languages that I dominate the most. Um, but, but I found that it was kind of a a blessing uh, that I could communicate with my communities in the language that they needed to receive information. Um, when it comes with prof to, to working with professionals, uh, yes, you're right. Um, I'm still uh, sometimes get the uh, kind of surprise uh, reaction of people uh, about being Puerto Rican and being a US citizen. Yeah. Um, to me, it's happening less, happening less and less. I think mostly because of the work that I do. Like I have written papers claiming colonialism as the structural determinant of health in Puerto Rico. So if somebody knows my work, uh, probably have come across that paper. Um, and so I get more questions that are informed by that work still coming out of curiosity and not of fully understanding the, the sociopolitical relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. Now, that being said, um, I would like to also argue about the differences and the notion on, or understanding that we have to have about the heterogeneity, heterogeneity in, in the Latino communities in the United States, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, when we are in Puerto Rico, we do not use terms like Latinos or Hispanics to self-identify in the context of Puerto Rico because we are Puerto Rican, right? Those labels were created to categorize people in the continental U.S. Right. Um, so, but the minute we come to the United States, we are Latinos or Hispanics, right? However, we have a very different experience than other Latinos and Hispanics. Uh, so that for me has been an extremely humbling and learning opportunity to work with my own Latino communities right now here in the uh, Washington DC area, because most of the Latinos in the area and, and Latinas, Latinx, they have an experience of migration and mobility that is very different to mine. Right. And, and I, I, I have been othered by, uh, by Latinos. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, sure, you're Latino, but you, you have all these privileges, right? Uh, the minute you moved here, you have the right to vote. You are a citizen. Uh, you're in academia. So, you know, you're somebody else. Um, and initially, I was shocked and almost saw it like, oh, this could be negative. But on the contrary, it adds value to the diversity within our community. Um, I, I have learned a lot 
And it's also helpful to highlight um, the diversity within our communities and how by just capturing very uh, unspecific data about people, uh, we are doing bad public health. Uh, and I hope that we get a minute to talk about the research that I've been recently doing on Latinos and, and public health emergencies because uh, one of the big issues is how we are, first of all, collecting data among, uh, among Latinos and what do we do with that data when really it doesn't mean a lot. That's so actually, I hope that I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly where we're going. That really leads into that primary next question, which is, um, so I'll, you know, um, myself, so right now I'm working on children's mental health um, after a disaster. My current research project is on Hurricane Harvey. So I'm looking at children's mental health over time. And so, what, you know, we have, of course, a diver you know, racial diversity in that. But one of the difficulties there is we know that um, cultural differences have major impact on how data is collected, how we understand, how we diagnose different, you know, different um, mental um, diagnoses and things like that. And so that really kind of leads to that question, how do you feel like reach, researcher diversity and diversity of the people who are designing these experiments and these programs, how do you feel that impacts public health work? Not even just, of course, research, but public health work as a whole. Yeah, so you know, you don't have to be part of a community to be culturally competent or culturally appropriate, um, or have the cultural humility to do good public health work. Now, when you are part of the community or have common experiences with the communities that you work with, you have a level of sensibility that you cannot learn in school, that you cannot learn just you know, from reading. Um, so that's that's an added value uh, and, and values are core to the approach that we decide to take on the work that we do in public health, particularly for those of us doing community health work and, and developing interventions. Um, so I think that also speak of the unfortunate scenarios that we still have in communities where uh, we, people who are diverse, period, are based on race, ethnicity, and in so many other areas are underrepresented in academia and in public health leadership, uh, including public health academia. In, uh, so then for those of us who have the experience and I, are able to teach or bring students and mentees to the field so they can also learn those experiences and learn how to work with communities, we have limited opportunities. So that's why we, we need to work on the pipeline of the future of, of, of public health in such a way that we are as diverse as the communities that we are meant to work with. Um, and with this, I'm not saying that we need to close the doors to other people who are interested in the field. Everybody's welcome. But for so long, we have been uh, teaching a public health that is for the majority, when actually the public health that we should be teaching is to work with the minorities who are systematically uh, affected by the actions and inactions that we take in public health. I agree. I think one thing that um, is often, I've, I've given you know, various talks in various groups and things like that. And one thing, uh, especially when I'm speaking to you know, largely um, 
Caucasian groups, you know, and they're trying to understand why diversity matters and why we really need to focus on disadvantaged groups. And, you know, I always try to really emphasize that it's about efficiency, right? If everyone does better, the entire community is improved. And I think that's something that's often overlooked. I think um, both in kind of mainstream discussion and then of course in academia and academic research and figuring out who goes in leadership, you know, I think sometimes people think it's just some um, ethical and moral push and it should be, of course there is, you know, especially because we know that it's not because of inability that, you know, these various groups and disadvantaged groups aren't there. It's because of intention, it's legislative intention, it's, you know, systemic intention, but it's also because with more people at the table who have the variety of you know, views and things like that, um, it improves the quality of our work and the efficiency of our work and outreach effectiveness. Well, similarly, as, as the way we think of public health as an interdisciplinary science, uh, and we bring knowledge from different areas, experiences from different areas, include, including cultural, linguistic, and other uh, experiences are as valuable. So it, it would be ideal to have an overlap of those diverse identities and diverse competencies on the table. Definitely. So yes. the meeting, go ahead, I'm sorry, Larry. Yeah, sorry. I, I agree with all of the key uh, things you have mentioned previously. I, I work in, I did a master's in public health, but I I currently work more in research at the lab in microbiology, but we had to go to the community to take the air samples. And, and that is critical, you know, to have uh, people that, that have a connection with the community and to uh, told, uh, told or say our results to them. Uh, so they can use them for to better their health. And in that line, I, I wanted to know, uh, what uh, it's your current work uh, in, in what, what is the focus of, of your current wor work on health and racial disparities in the face of COVID-19? And what are some key findings or aspects of your work that you think that have been overlooked? Yeah, well, um, so I've been fortunate to dedicate most of my uh, time in the last, uh, last few years to intervention development. Mm -hmm. So for public health intervention. So uh, describing the problem, working with communities to identify strengths and opportunities to um, intervene to improve or to enhance the ability to do something that is good for health. Um, and if you were to ask me in March 20. When the, is that the epidemic started, 2019? So it was founded. I keep forgetting. So 2020. Yeah. yeah. So, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, if you were to ask me, um, can you do some COVID-related work? I would laugh and said, I have no idea of COVID, vir uh, COVID viruses. I don't know what's going on. Um, but that changed very fast, <laughs> mostly because, well, first of all, it's an infectious disease, um, very different to other infectious diseases that I have studied. Um, and what was very obvious for those of us that have done work with minority groups and HIV, who, which is one of my areas of expertise, is that we were seeing just ha happening again that disproportionately um, 
affected populations by other social structural factors were being uh, in the worst, were showing the worst outcomes early in the pandemic. Um, so um, I was I was invited by a colleague who, who was uh, at that time doing some very initial research on uh, COVID in the Black and African-American communities in the United States. And he said, listen, we have the data. Um, let's do some work with the Latino population. Can you lead it? And I was like, you know, at that time I was, you know, moving all my activities to my sm small apartment, um, <laughs> shutting down the office, uh, teaching online. Uh, I was unable to collect data. Um, I have projects in Puerto Rico. The team in Puerto Rico was in the same position. I was like, well, okay, so sure, let's take a look at the data. And then, well, from there, it, it was a, an act of love, passion, and it turned into a very important part of, of the work that I've been doing more recently, including the overlap with um, uh, the intervention work that, that I'm I've been doing in, in other areas. And just to give you an example of work that I'm doing now that is connected to COVID, um, I used data from the very first three months of the pandemic, and we were able to identify um, the disparities of the pandemic and particularly how Latino communities were being affected. Um, and it was across the board. In communities where we had more Latinos, we had worse indicators in terms of COVID morbidity and mortality when compared to other groups. Um, and we did a very elaborated analysis. So we were able to identify even, uh, you mentioned air quality, Lorraine. So we use uh, EPA data and we identify that where we had poor air quality and the community was predominantly Latino, we saw uh, more cases of COVID and more mortality, right? right? Surprise to nobody who understand health disparities because we know that this is an issue of health just uh, of environmental justice. You know, many minoritized communities are in uh, geographical spaces where the air pollution is high. So, but that was not necessarily part of the narrative on COVID, right? It's right. like wait, 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 wait. You get COVID because the air quality is bad? No, that's not the message. Is that it was affecting uh, the um, morbidity? and likelihood of mortality because it's, it was part of the, the uh, different elements that in this case, a social component that was affecting the COVID outcomes. So nowadays um, I am doing work here in the Washington DC area, uh, specifically with the HIV services uh, because as many other service, health services, uh, the HIV services were disrupted during the pandemic. Um, people having to take the, uh, medical visits or uh, healthcare appointments with healthcare providers via Zoom, having a technology gap, um, not having internet, um, or what about the issues of mobility, privacy, all that. So currently I, I am finishing the analysis of data that we collected from providers and consumers of HIV prevention and care services. And we are um, using implementation, implementation science uh, frameworks to inform um, strengths and barriers that um, challenge the provision of uh, HIV services during uh, an early stage of the pandemic. With the idea that uh, there are some changes that we can make right away and 
will help during the current pandemic, right. but also thinking about the future. It's very unlikely that this is the last public health emergency that our generation will experience. So we need to learn from this experience so we could be ready for the next. Um, so that's the kind of work that we're doing. So we have, I am not reinventing HIV services, but I'm trying to provide information to strengthen or improve areas in which we were not ready to do what we needed to do because we didn't have either the resources, mechanisms of no, or knowledge of what to do. Right. Um, that actually speaks to kind of our last topic. Um, so, you know, months ago when Lorraine and I were really kind of putting together what we wanted to do um, with you, one of my areas of work is um, green and urban infrastructure and public health. How do we use these moments to improve um, community health and incorporating urban planning? And, you know, in, th in those spaces, we talk about, you know, resiliency. Uh, and Lorraine was like, oh, I have this great resource. And he does not care for the term resiliency. Uh, and he he talked he's talked extensively about the negative impact of that word. Now, as a person who has been doing you know a lot of work around public health and urban planning, I was like that doesn't make sense. This is a really important because it's you know it's very common, it's such a common and important indicator when we're talking about how do we improve that. And so um, I have since, of course, learned a bit more about your perspective. But I was hoping that you kind of take a little bit of time to expand upon you know, to other people who would also think, of course, resiliency is important. That's about improving the preparedness. So, you know, for you to take a little bit of time to talk about why the, the impact of the word resiliency in these conversations. Yeah. So let me start by saying that I am not against resilience, Yeah. right? It's when do we use the word resilience? In the area of infrastructure, for example, resilience is, is very important. And I am, I am not challenging the use of resilience in that area right. because resilience, if we were to explain it in, in late terms, is the ability to have more than one way of doing something, right? So whenever something fails, we have a plan B right. to execute. Now, uh, I'm a community health scientist and in community health, we have used resilience as a proxy to, well, people are not in the, or communities are not in great shape, but still they are able to thrive. Right. They are resilient. We don't give them anything, but they're still resilient, right? And to me, that's the wrong way of using the word resilience. But because even if we look at the seminal work on resilience, when it comes to human experience, you have to have something and some resources have to be provided to you so you can be resilient, right? I think that we can agree on that. The problem is that it's becoming kind of a, a buzzword to not to admit that often we work with communities that lack everything and we do nothing and the communities still thrive or at least survive. Um, and that is not resilience, right? That to me is resistance. Right. Because even, even when you, you meaning the government or society is leaving us behind, we're still doing something here. But don't call it resilience if you're not contributing in any way 
for us to survive or to thrive. Um, And the initial thoughts on this came after my own personal experience living in Puerto Rico during the impact of the Hurricane Maria Mm. uh, in the island. I was in Puerto Rico. um, That was before I moved uh, uh, to Washington, D.C. And I had the privilege of having access to uh, some channels of communication, including the Internet, very early after the, the hurricane. And the whole, the whole imagery that it was being um, presented of Puerto Rico in the continental U.S. and in the rest of the world was like, Puerto Rico is a disaster, it's been destroyed, but the community is resilient. <laughs> and they're, they, are, they are working to get back soon. Come on. Uh, that was not resilience. We were abandoned by all the structure that had the resources to do something. What we experienced in Puerto Rico was resistance. We did our thing and we survived months without electricity or without water or without proper communication because we resisted dying. We resisted not, you know, throwing the towel. Right. And in that context is that I'm against about the use of the word res- resilience because honestly, that's not resilience. Going to a country, a territory and throwing paper towel is not contributing to resilience of a community. And that's this, it is this, it's a disaster. And it's, it's, we are ashamed of the fact that that's part of our history. Yeah. But to me was the, Picking point of saying, you know what? I have to say something about this. Um, and as a, a and, and again, there are communities, there are people who are resilient. But if you're going to use that terminology, uh, let's use it correctly. No, I agree. I think um, I was with the group, and we're talking about, uh, you know, obviously in this midst of COVID, there's so much going on, and mm-hmm. because of staffing issues and things like that, and there's. You know, there's a story um, kind of loosely where, you know, you have these high school kids who have to basically take over driving for ambulance workers. And there's it, it's being lauded as this like feel good story. And for the, you know, the volunteers, they're amazing. They're doing, they really stepped in and they're really helping. But it's being like presented as this amazing story of resilience. Like, no, 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 that's, that's not good. That means the system, the structure that's supposed to help in these times of crisis is not working. And when Lorraine, you know, when I did some more reading and after Lorraine kind of presented me your discussion about that word, you know, it really kind of made me think a bit more carefully about when and where that term is used, because not only do I do, you know, urban planning work, but I also do a lot of community health work. And so, you know, I started thinking more carefully about when, you know, how often the word resilience is used, you know, oftentimes to cover up failings of structural issues. Um, and yeah, I, I thank you for that. And, and I appreciate that if, if, if anything, it's inviting us to think uh, about how we use certain terminology. Um, I would say that I am more critical when it comes from government because, um, uh, hey, you are responsible. So <laughs> you should not be proud that communities are resilient. We should not be in that place to start with. So um, let's, let's think about what it means and what it means for the future of the work that we can do with those communities. 
That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed their conversation. I know I did. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the Donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher. This podcast was recorded and produced by Gavin Rain and Lorraine Velez-Torres, edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Fanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Hannah Seo. A quick programming note, Hannah Seo is leaving us, making us so sad she is moving on to a small newspaper called the New York Times for a year-long fellowship. We are so proud of Hannah. She's been such an integral part of our Agents of Change team, and we wish her nothing but the best. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear, and our team would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with senior fellow Brenda Trejo-Rosas, a PhD candidate in the Environmental and Occupational Health Department at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. Have a great week, folks.